What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to bring you the Feelies in their first live performance in 17 years, live from Hoboken, New Jersey. Plus, Greg and I will review the new records from Nas and Girl Talk. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Yes, the major labels have been spinning the black circle uh, more than ever in the last decade. Vinyl album sales are up 77% in the last year, Jim. Think about that. At a time when CD sales are plunging like a rock, 16%, (laughs) vinyl sales are skyrocketing. Why are the major labels doing this? We turn to an executive at one of these labels for some insight. Yes, Greg, we have known Tom Grover Beery for a very long time when he was the uh, Midwest Regional Representative for Warner Brothers. Now he's a big deal, Vice President of Marketing, who also uh, handles the Vinyl Initiative. Welcome, Tom, to Sound Opinions. Hello, fellas. How are you? Good. Good. I mean, this has got to take you back to the beginning of your career. I mean, you sat on college radio and played 12-inch vinyl records for people. And nobody yeah, listened. Loved, have loved vinyl from the beginning and still do. So what explains this? I mean, for 10 years, vinyl has been dropping to almost a negligible amount. What turned the market around to the point where you guys are actually increasing the number of vinyl albums that you're producing? Well, you know, I think for us, you know, a couple things to keep in mind. One would be that vinyl is completely still and probably always will be a niche, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the niche market of vinyl You know, if you've got the catalog that we have and the roster that we have, it actually makes total sense. And part of it came um, actually from a conversation with Neil Young. And, you know, Neil, historically, when he's done with a record, he comes in and, you know, he's been on reprise for 30-plus years or whatnot, and he comes in and the whole company gets around and he plays the record. So when he came in to play the greatest hits, and at the end of it he did a speech, he talked about sound, and he talked about the passion that artists have when they're in the studio making music, and that is partly the responsibility um, of record companies and the record industry to respect that and to champion that. And he's like, you know, because sound matters. Mm. And it really was a simple in my head, being the vinyl head that I was, I kind of just went, you know what, you're right. Mm. I mean, Warner Brothers doesn't do something like this, though, unless it can make money, right, Tom? I mean, this is a money-making venture for you guys now, or was it, it? did it start out strictly as this labor of love that grew into a money-making start, venture? It start, I know it's going to be hard for anyone to believe, you know, mm-hmm. but it started out as a labor of love. I suppose it didn't hurt that at the same time, CD sales were going down, continued to go down. And like everyone's looking at the, at, the, at the record business trying to figure out, like, what's going to come along to, to save it. Tom, who's buying the vinyl and why? What are your studies showing in terms of who's going out there and getting this stuff and desiring it? It's changing, actually. I think when we first started venturing back into this, we were thinking like the audiophile guys. 
but what's happened is that now we're almost seeing where there's that person still exists so we can do like a high-end record, if you will, and we can actually do like just a regular, normal sort of record for a whole different consumer now. Kids, college kids, even adults, they're, they're buying records. And it's kind of fascinating if you look at Metallica as an example. Um, you know, we're reissuing their catalog on vinyl, starting out with, with the very first record. We're doing a deluxe version because all the Metallica records, when they were made, they never came out sort of, you know, as good as I, I thought they could from a sound point of view. So we've been putting them out on 45 RPM mm. on 180 gram, and that retails for 30 bucks. And then at the same time, we're putting out the exact same record um, on a single disc, but instead of being 30 bucks, it's in record stores at like 15 bucks. And we're selling equal numbers of both between the two versions combined. It's in the neighborhood of 30,000. Hmm. Wow. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good, right? Yeah. So yeah. This, this generation that has been typecast as being all about convenience and portability and not caring a whit about album art, packaging, all that other stuff. It sounds like they're, in fact, the ones who are generating this desire to have the physical package, in spite of what all the trends say. I agree. And if you go, you know, living here, we're a little spoiled because we've got this fabulous, giant, independent record store, Amoeba, Amoeba you know. And, but if you go to Amoeba any time of the day or night and you go to their vinyl section, it's just loaded with all different kinds of folks buying records, and, and often kids. They're, like, on their knees in the bins. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, they're into it. What about the future of this? Is this just a blip on the uh, the radar screen, or do you see this as a long-term growth area for a big label like Warner Brothers? You know, I never thought of it as as a growth area, to be honest, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's there's a certain limit to it, I suppose, but the next three to five years, it seems like it's going to keep growing. So I don't view it as a fad. I think it's it's something that's going to have some staying power. Tom, thanks for uh, sharing the Warner Brothers perspective. It's good to talk to you. No problem. Thanks, guys. Greg, that's a little bit of the music from Graduation, Kanye West's last album, one of the most successful of 2007 in terms of sales, and also illegally downloaded the most. Uh, how do these two things square? The music industry is starting to come to terms with the fact that albums that are downloaded often sell. In fact, Nas's manager, we're going to review the new Nas album uh, later in the show, Nas's manager is saying, I don't think the leak has hurt Nas in any way. Goes on to say he basically thinks it helped. So major labels are readjusting their thinking on albums that leak before the official release, before they're available for sale in stores. To help us understand how and why that might be, we turn to an expert who measures online traffic, among many other things. Eric Garland co-founded Big Champagne Media Measurement. They are to the uh, online traffic world and measurement what Nielsen is to television ratings. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Eric, five years ago, it seems to me that leaks were regarded as a huge problem for uh, a lot of the labels. Uh, they were against them. But now we seem to be seeing a, a shift in recent months, especially with the early leakage of albums like Lil Wayne and Kanye West Graduation, which nonetheless did big numbers uh, sound scan wise where the labels are now looking at these leaks as possibly 
an advantageous thing? What are you seeing? What is your research showing? Well, of course, five years ago, we were on the verge of solving the piracy problem. Yeah. And I say that facetiously, but, but it really was uh, sort of the prevailing belief in among media companies at that time that this was a temporary problem and that litigative and legislative solutions would win out. And so one of the things that's happened over the last five years is that it's become apparent that this condition in which we now live is not transitory, it's not temporary, uh, it's, it's a fact of mm-hmm. media distribution in the 21st century, that, that scarcity is hard to achieve and that all of these things will make their way online and they will be available to those who want them in that form. And so you have to work with and exploit and try to find the silver lining in online distribution because there is no alternative. Uh, I think with respect to early leaks, you also have a very real internal struggle within these music companies because different departments have very different aims. You know, the the person who's in charge of anti-piracy, of course, has a very different perspective on the pre-release leak of the Lil Wayne record than the person who is in charge of marketing or promotion. You know, I think if we were talking to Lil Wayne, if he was the fourth party here, you know, he would say, I want to make the Benjamins. But priority number two, if not number one, would be I want people to hear my music. Absolutely. And, and you can't have the former without the latter. It's interesting, too, because uh, you have this notion that file sharers were advocating almost from the start. Hey, how are you going to want to go out and buy the thing if you can't hear it? But this seems to be saying, in the case of like the Little Rain Wayne record or the Kanye West record, that people did hear the music ahead of time, they liked it, they went out and bought it. Do you see it that way? There's a lot of statistical evidence for that, because remember, we're not, these days we're not just talking about file sharing or, or what is now the sort of old-fashioned notion of MP3 downloading. There's so many ways in which people sample music, even pre-release music, for free, and some of them legitimate ways, sanctioned ways, like like streamed music from a MySpace page. Mm -hmm. And what we see is there's a tremendous volume of consumption in terms of listening, downloading, that leads very directly to purchase. Now, it's not to say that there isn't a piracy problem. But it's more complicated than what we used to say, which is just, well, when somebody gets it for free, we've lost a sale. Let's do what they, they want on the uh, marketplace and say, let, let's do the numbers. <laughs> can, you, can you give us some of the statistics you're seeing that, that back up that claim? If you look at the most pirated records of the year, with few exceptions, those line up exactly with the biggest selling records of the year. For music companies, this information on face was really counterintuitive. But the reality is, demand in the pirate market necessarily closely maps to demand in the legitimate market because it's really an expression of the same thing. Is there validity to the argument, though, that if Kanye West sold 3 million records, thanks to piracy, he really should have sold 10 million? Overall, music is not commanding the kind of dollar value that it did 10 years ago. And the problem is that if you try to attribute all of that to piracy... You ignore many of the other equally important evolutions in the marketplace over the last 10 years, like the fact that so many competitive products, and I'm talking now about video games and DVDs, have gotten into the the very competitive landscape at, in many cases, a more favorable price point. We want to thank Eric Garland, the co-founder of Big Champagne Media Measurement, for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks, guys. 
listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're hearing a little bit of a song called Forces at Work from the debut album by the Feelies. Crazy Rhythms, one of my favorite records ever, Greg, and I know it's high on your hit list, too. 1980, who were the Feelies? I mean, they formed in the mid-70s in the wake of that explosion of activity in New York City in the punk era, but... The Feelies were very much a New Jersey band, hailed in New Jersey. These were the original nerd boys (laughs) on whom, you know, Weezer has modeled their whole career. And they were also that great urban rhythm, uh, you know, that the strokes have ripped off and that wonderful guitar jangle that would inspire R.E.M., If you've never heard of the Feelies, you've heard a heck of a lot of Feelies in other music in the last 25 years. We went to my old stomping grounds of Hoboken, New Jersey, where I grew up and (laughs) and fell in love with being a music fan at a club called Maxwell's. We were able to go there and uh, bring some listeners from WFUV in New York, our station in New York, into a very intimate performance. The Feelies were reuniting for the first time in 17 years to play a huge show at Battery Park in New York City on July 4 with Sonic Youth who are big fans as well. A couple of days before that, we got to tape the band in a live performance at Maxwell's for friends and family only. And us. How great is that, huh? It was pretty great, Jim. You're absolutely right. Uh, To see the missing link between the Velvet Underground and the Strokes performing for the first time in 17 years was an extraordinary opportunity for us. We're going to hear a little bit of our discussion with all five members of the band at Maxwell's later on in the show, but, you know, we just can't wait to hear <laughs> that, yeah. that concert. I remember the anticipation uh, before that show began. I don't think I've seen we you dance like. that much in a very long time. <laughs> you were shaking your cot booty there. I'm telling you, those caffeinated rhythms. I mean, it's like all five <laughs> band members are, you know, chugging coffee before they get on stage, and man, they were just wired. A great show to see. We want to treat you to a little bit of that performance. Uh, the song Higher Ground from the Only Life album in 1988. Here's how it sounded at Maxwell's on Sound Opinions.
That was the Feelies performing Higher Ground at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. We're going to return to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our conversation with the Feelies. And later on, Jim and I are going to review new albums from Nas and Girl Talk. I see a red toe and I want you to paint it black. No colors anymore, I want them to be black. I see the girls walk by dressed in their summer clothes. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, I think people uh, who listen to the show know that we're generally skeptical of for-the-money reunions, but there have been a handful of bands that have come back after a long hiatus and really done the legacy proud. Nobody short of Pink Floyd has been on the list higher than the Feelies. We've been waiting for them to come back. We got to be there the night that they first stepped on a stage, first time in 17 years at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. We're going to hear more of their performance from that night in a little bit. But first, here's our conversation with members of the Feelies. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey with the Feelies. And you can hear the bar being set up as we speak behind us. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. We, we have to set this up, Greg. I mean, to be sitting here at Maxwell's. Well, you're getting goosebumps on your arms. I, I can am. see them. I was trying to think about how to introduce what it means to be here. With um, We're going to have a room full of Sound Opinions fans from WFUV. The Feelies gave us some tickets. To be here at Maxwell's, this club with this history of 30 years. You know, I mean, that CBGB place, I mean, that had some hype to it. <laughs> but, but, but Maxwell's in Hoboken here is, is every bit as venerated. To be here with this band playing tonight for the first time in 17 years. This is the band, Greg, that taught me how to be a fan. Now, it might, might sound weird You're going to lay that, that on their, on I their am shoulders, lay that. huh? Yeah, and I've wow. been writing about them since I was 17 and getting things <laughs> wrong since I was 17. You know, because it's much harder to write about a band you truly love than to write about, you know, Hillary Duff. I, I agree. Know. You're right about that. So thank you, Felice, for doing this for us. <laughs> Thanks for inviting us. <laughs> Very special. Uh, and, and the band is here. Bren, Brenda Souter, uh, Glenn Mercer, Bill Million, Stanley Domeski, and the inimitable Dave Weckerman. Hello, Jim. <laughs> why don't we start, guys, with why is this the first Feelies gig in 17 years? Glenn, we talked about your solo album a bit on the show last year. It was one of my favorite records of the year. Everybody participated except your longest-time partner, Bill. Was that really the nexus of what brought the Feelies back together? Um, no, I don't think so. Although I had hoped that I could have uh, made that record as a Feelies record, but it didn't uh, work out with scheduling. And you know, I guess we could say, why not? Really, no big reason <laughs> not to. We haven't played in 17 years. Why not play again? 
Yeah, I guess. You know, the last uh, Feelys gigs were 91, 92, that, that incarnation of the band. When the band sort of drifted it, its separate ways at that point, did you look at it as this is sort of a final thing, we're never going to play together again, or is, was it one of those uh, famous Feelys hiatuses where you always felt, well, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, there w- will be a point when we get back together again? We were planning to play again um, after the final show here, but it just never happened, and then Bill moved to Florida, so he said, well... I guess it'll be a while before we ever play again or Bill will ever come up here. We didn't know. And yeah. we, but now he came up. This is Dave Weckerman speaking. So we, didn't, a... we never said, like, well, that's the end of the band. Well, at the time, you, uh, there was this perception of the Feelys as 1978 famously headlined in the Village Voice, one of the most influential music publications in, in America at the time, as the best underground band in New York, which you know, meant a lot at that time. Um, at the same time, there was a sense that even though you guys were incredibly serious about the music, you were super casual about the whole idea of, of this band being a career. And uh, I interviewed Jonathan Demi, the director, a few uh, number of years ago, and he said they were the most studiously uncareerist group of individuals I'd ever met. <laughs> um, Intended as a compliment. Yeah. So I guess the question, Glenn, Bill... Dave, you, you guys were here very much at the inception of this band. How did you see yourselves at that point in terms of the long-term view? Was this, was this intended to be a rock band up there like the Velvets or like the Stones, some of your heroes? I mean, did you ever see yourselves in that light with, with the Feelies? I don't think we ha- actually had a long, long-term view. I think that probably the typical parameters that are expected in the music business never applied to the Feelies. We just didn't think in, in those terms like, being a big touring band, selling a lot of records. And I, I know Glenn's kind of talked about the same thing. Pretty much everything we've ever done, we've actually kind of almost walked backwards into, and we're kind of guided by certain things that are that are presented to us. And we're, we're pretty intuitive as a band in that regard. So we didn't have a long-term view. I mean, initially, really, our goal was to make a record. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, we'd really never discussed what would happen. Well, and that record, you know, I think is on my short list of the most extraordinary rock albums ever. Forget the top ten. It would be vying for space in the top three that I would take to a desert island. Crazy Rhythms comes out in 1980. You recorded it with the sound man from CBGB, right, Mark Abel? He gave a, a couple of interviews around that time saying, basically, they drove me crazy. Those guys had perfected in their heads what they wanted this album to sound like, <laughs> and they came in and they did it. It has this sort of mad scientist vibe to it. You know, the sound is is so extraordinary and unlike anything else still to this day in rock and roll, uh, the way that album was recorded and and the presentation. I mean, sure, the Talking Heads were playing in Izod shirts and had this kind of psycho killer nerd image, but you guys were proudly suburban, hailing from Haldon, New Jersey, this kind of leafy suburb outside of Patterson, and, and that blue cover, which Weezer would later pay <laughs> homage to on the first cover, the, the, first, the, the first Weezer album, that cover is good the point. Feelies Crazy Rhythms cover. How much that was thought out? I mean, you would give interviews. I remember an interview, I think, Bill, you said, we don't like to play in New York City because driving through the Lincoln Tunnel gives us a headache. You were joking, right? <laughs> Oh, it was yeah. just such a perfect suburban nerd mad scientist <laughs> quote. Well, I, I think 
I mean, there were things. We were talking on the way over here, Glenn and I, about Jonathan Richmond. And we used to go to the Mercer Arts Center on a regular basis. They used to have great shows every weekend. There was one particular event where, I don't know if you've ever been to the Mercer, but uh, they had a lot of rooms, and there were Mm -hmm. bands in every room. And that was around the time, I guess, the New York Dolls were real popular, and they were playing that night. The Modern Lovers were also playing that night. And Mm -hmm. it it was just extraordinary because... They came out, and Jonathan Richmond just, you know, he had chinos on, a button-down shirt, short hair. The contrast was really extraordinary, and I think it probably uh, left an impression on us at the time. Yeah. It said uh, you don't have to look like Mick Jagger or David Johansson, the New York Dolls, to play great rock and roll. Exactly. And yeah. they, they were the best music of the evening, without a doubt. Peter Buck of R.E.M. ended up producing your, your second record, which came out six, seven years later. It took a long time for you guys to make that second record. Well, actually, it, actually, not to interrupt, but he, uh, he gets a co-production credit. Right. And, you know, and really, I think for all of our records, it, uh, we always preferred to have someone in the studio just to bounce ideas off of and get opinions on basic tracks and how different takes were, were going. Buck actually told me that what he did was sit around with his feet up on the console, <laughs> nap a lot, and he contributed like one guitar sound, that's the, the one that sounds like the bagpipes. He played He-Man with my son. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that Buck said about that first Feelies record, which preceded R.E.M.'s recorded output for the most part, and he said that the reason that Murmur sounds the way it did was because we had to, we had to make a record as good as, as Crazy Rhythms. <laughs> and... Uh, and it was interesting to me that when you did actually end up recording with Buck, that you made a record that was, if not 180 different from Crazy Rhythms, it was certainly a different feel altogether in the band in terms of the presentation of the music. And I, my question is, what, what, what was going on in the band at the time where you, where you shifted? Obviously, there was different personnel in the band, yeah, too. Yeah, this is when Stanley and Brenda came into the group. Right. Well, so what kinda, was going I on at the time? the approach t- we took was that the production would suit the material, with that record, there was a lot more acoustic guitar used. Percussion had a little bit different kind of a role within that sound. went to school to study drums right yeah i've had this conversation with you through the years and it always fascinates me i mean there was there's a very special rhythm on crazy rhythms and then it evolved as as the good earth came out where did the feelies get this rhythm what is the the feelies rhythm it's a variation of a shuffle rhythm at various mm-hmm. speeds really you know just both diddly i hear a lot of surf drumming yeah mm. yeah but you know put all those th- beats but it's all like Stan says. It comes from basic, old-style rock and roll beats, like Bo Diddley and surf snare drum beats. Where the backbeat kind of falls a little bit behind. Like the Ventures, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, but I always say, say, you know, I mean, that song that you had, The Undertow, which started as, as a song in one of your offshoot bands, The Tripes, and then you guys later recorded it. It is an undertow. It's like this, this rhythm kind of sucks you in. I've had this conversation with other drummers, the, the guy from The Strokes, 
It's a huge fan of the Feelys rhythm. The people from Arcade Fire very much doing what you guys do, where they decorate the rhythm with the percussion. They've heard of us? They've heard of you. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, we are here live at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey, with the Feelys. The way my wife found out about the Feelys was uh, something wild. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, wow, that's cool. Who are those guys? Oh, they're the Feelys. And then the and then this song slipping into something sort of seeps into your consciousness elsewhere. And, and, and the next thing you know, people hear about the Feelys, and you're able to tour a little more widely, and you're more than just an East Coast band. Was it a good thing for you guys? Was it a good experience being in that Jonathan Demi movie? And, uh, and it's sort of in this quirky role where yeah. you're playing at a high school reunion. <laughs> Playing these covers, monkey songs and fame, disco yeah. songs, things like that. He wanted us to dress up in wild costumes and stuff, and we didn't. We just, you know, we were ourselves and stuck to that. It was a good experience. It was fun. Did Demi want you to play those covers? I mean, whose idea was it to, to he, do those particular songs? He had a list yeah, that he, we chose he, from. He would call, like, pretty much every day with a different cover in his head. He's a... He's a very high energy sort of guy and um he was a lot of fun to work with and uh he would call and the next day would change his mind and come up with something else or, or we would say well no we don't think that will work and we tried a lot of different covers that he came up with but he did have a list from the time period of all the you know big songs at that time used to see the feelies together on stage it was uh, the one thing that always struck me and my friends who went to see you was the obvious love that you guys had for music the exuberance was there i remember writing a review distinctly you played a show at the vic in uh, 91 this was near the end of the run and it's like watching five kids in a sandbox and I, I, I said that with all due respect it was just one of those things where five people were up there doing exactly what they love to do my question is does it feel that way now it still feels like we're back in that sandbox and we're playing, we're doing the absolute favorite thing there is to do in the world for us. Yeah, well, I think it does. Uh, You know, I think that that's why uh, you become a musician. You know, you go in and you close the door behind you, and that's, I think most bands are like that. Certainly it's not for the money. (laughs) No, not for the money. (laughs) A couple of new songs, I heard. Uh, Does that mean maybe there'll be another Feelys album, a fifth Feelys album? Hopefully, yeah. Wow. Made my year. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anywhere to go after that. They're on the like, record. They're on like, the record now. They're on they, the can't record. Go. they can't but go away. Yeah, but what you don't understand is the pace at which, I mean, that could be 2015. <laughs> but Sooner that's fine. Later. It's worth yeah. waiting. Sooner or later. Sooner or later. Yeah. We have to oh, thank well. the Feelies. Thank you so much for uh, thank you. being our guest yeah, on Sound Thanks for having Thank us. you. It was a lot of fun to talk to the Feelies after all these years once again, and uh, what better way to cap off our conversation with an example of what they did that very same night, performing the landmark song Crazy Rhythms from their debut album live at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey, on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions. 
That is the Feelies performing crazy rhythms on Sound Opinions. To hear more of that magical first reunion concert, visit us online at soundopinions.org. We'll have a few more tracks up there. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the latest albums from Nas and Girl Talk.
In America, you'll never be free. Middle fingers up, the police. Damn, can a nigga just breathe? Brave heart, still QB's finest. Grinding enough diamonds to change the climate. Not only do you see a nigga shining, you can see a nigga breathe. Jewels enchanted like they was new from Atlantis. Cruise with the hammer, jealous heart, it can't stand them. Haters are scandalous. Damn, can't a nigga just breathe? Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Breathe from the ninth studio album by Nas, officially untitled. Greg, I think this was the biggest controversy in hip-hop since the kind of non- feud or manufactured fight between Kanye West and 50 Cent last year. In the wake of the Imus scandal, Nas Nasir Jones, longstanding East Coast rapper, officially said that he wanted to call this album the N-word. And uh, whether it was threats of Walmart and other box stores saying they weren't going to sell such an album with such a title, or uh, congressional threats. There were actually legislators on the East Coast that said that they would condemn and and try to prohibit this title, or the whole thing just being a stunt. Mm -hmm. It's officially untitled. It is not the N-word, except the cover does depict the uh, Nas's back whipped like a slave would have been in the 17 and 1800s with an N carved into his skin. Who is Nas? Nasir Jones, I think, came on strong in the early 90s, wrestling the spotlight away from West Coast rap after several years of dominance to bring it back to New York with his incredibly gritty and musically and lyrically provocative Illmatic album. I think that's a high point he's been trying to live up to ever since. A lot of anticipation wondering if he would do it this time, especially with all the publicity that preceded this release. We'll talk about whether he delivers the goods politically, lyrically, and musically in a minute. But first, let's hear a song, You Can't Stop Us Now. I think Nas got a C on his uh, high school sophomore history papers because he gets a a little bit of American history wrong here. But it's a song about uh, basically tracing racism through the history of the U.S. into the present day. Here's Nas on Sound Opinions. From Willie Lynch to Willie Hutch, right on. We super fly. Made Gucci to sh- Louis too. Suits and ties. Player trophies. Pray to Goldie. Picture wax museums full of black pimps and triple OGs. Aunt Jemima. Historic horse Girls from long time ago. Stagecoach with the horse kid. Witch doctors. Good old pickpockets. Sip moonshine. So-called coon shines and darkies. I love y'all. Pyramids to cotton fields to Wrigley fields. Forgotten men who did get killed. Christmas addicts, the first plastic piece of the rich lady purse snatcher shot in the back. I know you're hungry, kid. I know they hung your dad. Burnt your mama crib. I know that hurt your bad. Minstrel shows from gold to shackles and back to gold. We act like we home. Matter of fact, we are home. Bad attitudes, octoroon skin tones. Slave food turned to soul food. Collar to neck bones. Bessie Rose sold the first American flag. Bessie had a nigga with it to help her old. As James Bowen says, you can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world considers. You can't stop us now on sound opinions from Nas's untitled album. Jim, big statements about race and racism all over this record. Um, Nas has always had a reputation in the hip-hop community as being one of the smartest and most outspoken rappers out there. 
However, I've always valued him most as a storyteller. He is a great storyteller. When mm. he's on top of his game, there is no better rapper. I'm thinking of, of songs like uh, Do Rags from the Lost Tapes or a great song called I Gave You Power from the It Was Written album in 1996 in which he personifies a gun and all that implies. Yeah. Just great detailed storytelling. On this record, he's bit into big sweeping statements and frankly, a lot of this stuff is a big letdown. He keeps talking about a re- what a revolutionary is, but how can rebellion sound so dull? I think there's two yeah. problems here. <laughs> He's going after some really easy targets. Okay, yes, there is a race problem in this country. Tell me something I don't know. When he's going after Fox TV, yeah, yeah, yeah. the right-wing media, and a song like Sly Fox, yes, they're biased. Tell me something I don't know. What's more problematic for me is that he has got a tin ear for beats and hooks. I just don't think this guy gets the music his rapping deserves, and I think part of Mm. the problem lies with Nas. He's got a menu of producers and songs to choose from, and he consistently chooses these really sterile, lame, boring backing tracks when he's got something profound to say, or he goes to the flip side when he's doing the big pop crossover attempts as he's got a couple of would-be singles on this on this record yeah. that really sound just annoying sing-songy choruses, so he can't seem to get the formula right. Well, I only agree with half of what you just said. Yeah, Nas blows it lyrically. You know, write what you know is the cliche. And if he were illustrating examples of racism in everyday life on the streets, as he did the gangster culture on Illmatic, I think he'd be spot on. Instead, he's giving us these big sweeping political pronouncements, Sly Fox, you know, watch what you watch and Fox gives you toxins. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Or, hey, he's not doing Barack Obama any favors with that song Black President. Right. He doesn't understand, I think, global politics. He doesn't understand history. However, I think musically it's great. I, I think the beats on this record, you know, you have uh, Palo de Don and you have Stargate and you have Cool and Dre and Mark Ronson. I think they're all delivering the goods and his flow is really appealing. And, you know, even one of those pop crossover hits you're talking about, you know, Fried Chicken is a great, you well, know, that's the best track on the record. Yeah, well, it's food as a sex metaphor yeah. with Buster Rhymes and they're just having fun. I, I think musically this is a great album and I think he dropped the ball in terms of intellectual content. Yeah, I I think the bar is so low right now for political content on a mainstream level in hip-hop that uh, a lot of people are celebrating this Nas record as being great simply because he's addressing some of these topics. Right. But I I really think it's been done better on on a number of levels. When when we talk about that LP record that came out last year, for example, uh, a much more stinging critique of what's going on in this country. Lupe Fiasco's last album was more political, really, than Nas's record. We rate things on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I have to say... It's a burn it. It's a burn it only because of those handful of good tracks and the rest of it is a trash. I have to say that this is the most disappointing Nas album. He's made a bunch where he's tried to live up to Illmatic, and I think this is a trash it. I think this is the worst Nas record yet. That's what it's all about on Sound Opinions from the new Girl Talk record called Feed the Animals. Who is Girl Talk? Uh, Greg Gillis, a former biochemist out of Pittsburgh who has fashioned a career as a bedroom 
composer. Sample-based composing is what Greg Gillis does. He takes little bits and pieces of famous recordings and threads them together into new pieces of pop music. He's become a reluctant poster child for the fair use doctrine in uh, the copyright law debate in this country, basically saying that if you recontextualize and reconfigure past music, past art, and make something new out of it, it's fair game. You don't have to pay any royalties on it. Thus far, he's been winning the battle. Most of the artists who he's been sampling seem to be just fine with the fact that he's been doing this to their compositions. I mean, look at the list of artists that he is sampling on his fourth album, Feed the Animals. Uh, We've got people like the Jackson 5 and Rihanna and Queen, Metallica, the Carpenters, Rick Astley, Soul to Soul, En Vogue, the Ghetto Boys, all of these artists being mashed together in unlikely combinations that turn into pretty entrancing dance music was a big success story with his Night Ripper album in 2006, began touring around the country with that record, and turned into a sensation. You know, with just his laptop and an armada of samples, he created these frenzied dance parties that have led to big slots at uh, festivals like Pitchfork and Lollapalooza, headlining slots at clubs and theaters around the country, now one of the best-known underground artists and certainly the, the biggest star that the so-called mashup movement has produced in the last decade. Here's a track from his new album, Feed the Animals. It's called Like This on Sound Opinions. track like this by Girl Talk, a.k.a. Greg Gillis. I mean, in that little snippet alone, Greg, we're hearing Praz, the rapper, with Yola Tango, with Janet Jackson, with Eve, with the Carpenters, Metallica, (laughs) Soldier Boy, and I'm leaving out six or seven. You know, there are two ways to assess this artist. Since he was on Sound Opinions last year and is very eloquent in talking about what he's doing politically in terms of copyright use, I think that argument stands. Let's just talk about it as art. If you don't think what he's doing is art, well, I tell you, why don't you get four radios in a room and stand there and try to have you and some of your friends uh, skillfully manipulate the dials all at the same time, (laughs) nonstop, and see if you can get them to land on the perfect part of great songs simultaneously every time, time and time and time again for the course of a three- or four-minute track. You know, it's not going to happen. You know, this is not any monkey in a room with a typewriter. Right. This guy is really genius at what he does. I think that this is actually a better album even than Night Ripper. I've just been having a great time listening to these roller coaster rides Mm -hmm. through the incredible diversity of the pop spectrum. I can't get enough of this music. 
it's uh, pretty amazing how he can make the Carpenters and Metallica work together and make it seem natural. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it doesn't feel forced. What's interesting about this record as opposed to Night Ripper, he's letting the grooves ride a little bit more on this record. He's stretching out the songs, giving them more space to breathe. If he finds a good groove, he's going to ride it a little bit more. Whereas Night Ripper was more about establishing his bona fides as an incredibly great editor, a, a great mixer, a guy who can make these micro-edits and shift songs on a dime. It was more about the headphones. This record is more about the dance floor. But at this the same is more time, about being playing it live. At the same time, he's got 300-some-odd samples on this record, yeah. and there were only 200 on Night Ripper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the work is still incredibly dense, but he's clearly understanding where he is in the pop community now. He is a... He's no longer a bedroom guy that uh, 10 people mm-hmm. have heard about. He is a guy playing festivals, and he's now making music to appeal to those fields of people out there who want to party. I'm not going to make any great claims for this in terms of, like, this is going to change civilization. <laughs> but as a pop artist, I think Gillis, a.k.a. Girl Talk, is, is right where it needs to be right now. This is a lot of fun. This record is going to be starting a lot of parties this summer and well into the fall. And I think it's a buy it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I can't agree enough. It is a buy it record, except you don't even have to do that. Exactly. right now it's an Internet release under the Radiohead model of pay what you think it's worth. Double buy it for uh, Girl Talk, Jim. Next week, however, a little less enthusiasm for the matter at hand because we have to admit something that we rarely do. We screwed up. We were wrong. Next week, we're going to fess up to all the mistakes that we've made as critics and document them for the pleasure of our listening audience. Yeah, that'll be one to tape. We have some thank yous to say, as always, Mr. Cott. Sound Opinions was produced by our intrepid team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Dylan Peterson, the intern. Out in New York, the feelies were recorded by Hear No Evil, LLC, mixed at home here by Mary Gaffney, and uh, my old friend Andy Peters was the feelies sound man. Of course... Talk about forces at work. You talk about crazy rhythms, man. There ain't nobody crazier than Tory Southside Malatia. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Guys, it's Chris. I'm from the Midwest. Just listen to your sub-pop show, and I gotta tell you that uh, while I really appreciated your calling out the Afghan wigs and Nirvana was an obvious one, I really felt you dropped the ball. I expected to hear some of that early sunny day real estate. they've had in the past five to ten years, I feel they're really probably the second most important thing that Sub Pop ever did. Other than that, guys, hey, keep it up. Thanks. Bye.
Hi, guys. My name is Russ. I'm in Oxford, Mississippi. Big fan of the show. Listening to this last weekend's show about uh, when you welcomed your Louisville affiliate, I was floored that you named Wilson Pickett as the artist closely associated with Louisville since he was born in Prattville, Alabama, and his family then moved to Detroit, and he's probably inextricably linked with Atlantic Records, Memphis, and the Stax Records studio and that whole scene. So I was just kind of amazed that with choices like Will Oldham, Slint, and one of the guys who's in Stereo Lab, I was just astonished that you would pick somebody who, to the best of my knowledge, has nothing to do with Louisville whatsoever. That's it. Great show. Bye. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is John in Chicago. I'm a dedicated listener to the show, and I've learned a lot from y'all, but I think you might have missed the boat last week. Um, You had a great discussion about the realities of touring in these days of crazy fuel prices, and you were talking with a musician who provided a fantastic first-person description of the challenges, but then you played maybe three seconds of her band. So here she is giving valuable insight on music biz to your audience, and you didn't play your record. I think it would have been a great opportunity to help a sister out, as it were. But uh, really, that's my only complaint. Thanks a lot for what you do. Bye. This is Elaine in San Diego. You know, I've been listening to the show uh, via podcast for over a year now, and the guys have turned me on to such great music, but really kind of went to a different level when they turned me on to Black Mountain. Wow, what a band. And since then, I've been listening a lot more closely. So when you guys both uh, recommended Nick Cave as your number one pick, I had to sit and admit to myself that I I was there. I was there with the birthday party. I followed Nick Cave as a teenager. I still remember seeing him at a uh, local club in Los Angeles and definitely have the T-shirt to prove it. But to hear his new stuff is absolutely amazing. It is the best record I've heard all year. And I'm going to catch them in Seattle in September. So thanks a lot, you guys, for turning me on to such great music and getting me reconnected with Nick. Bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.